Section 14 of A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by a Gentleman on His Travels. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by T.R. Love of Pleasant Hill, California. A Description of Millennium Hall and the Country Adjacent by Sarah Scott. The History of Miss Selvin, Part 2. Miss Selvin, accordingly, read as follows. When I was seventeen years old, Lord Payton asked me of my father, but not till after he had secured my tenderest affections. His estate was sufficient to content a parent who was not regardless of fortune and splendor, and his proposals were accepted. But while the tediousness of the lawyers made us wait for the finishing of settlements, Lord Payton, who was in the army, was commanded to repair immediately to his regiment, then stationed in Ireland. He endeavored to prevail with my father to hasten our marriage, offering every kind of security he could desire, instead of the settlements so long delayed. My wishes concurred with his, rather than suffer him to go without me into a kingdom which I imagined would not prove very amusing to him. But my father, who was a very exact observer of forms, would not consent to any expedient. No security appeared to him equivalent to settlements, and many trifling circumstances requisite to the splendor of our first appearance were not ready which to him seemed almost as important as the execution of the marriage writings. When Lord Payton found my father inexorable, he attempted to persuade me to agree to a private marriage, only desiring, he said, to secure me entirely his before he left the kingdom, and proposed that after his return we should be publicly married, to prevent my father's suspecting that we had anticipated his consent. But this I rejected. Disobedience to a parent and other objections were sufficient to make me refuse it, and we saw ourselves reduced to separate when we were so near being united. As Lord Payton was an accepted lover, and our intended marriage was publicly known and generally approved, he passed great part of his time with me. My father was obliged to go out of town on particular business the day before that appointed for Lord Payton's departure. It is natural to suppose we passed it entirely together. The concern we were both under made us wish to avoid being seen by others, and therefore I was denied to all visitors. Lord Payton dined and supped with me, and by thus appropriating the day to the ceremony of taking leave, we rendered the approaching separation more afflicting than in reason it ought to have been, and indeed made it a lasting affliction, a grief never to be washed away. Lord Payton left London at the appointed hour, but the next days, and almost every succeeding post, brought me the tenderest expressions of regret for this enforced absence, and the strongest assurances of the constancy of his affection. Mine could not with truth be written in a more indifferent strain. 
my love was the same, but my purpose was much altered. As soon as I had calmness of mind enough to reflect on what had passed, I resolved never to be Lord Peyton's wife. I saw my own misconduct in all its true colors. I despised myself and could not hope for more partial treatment from my husband. A lover might, in the height of his passion, excuse my frailty, but when matrimony and continued possession had restored him to his reason, I was sensible he must think of me as I was conscious I deserved. What confidence, what esteem could I hope from a husband who so well knew my weakness? Or how could I support being hourly exposed to the sight of a man whose eyes would always seem to reproach me? I could scarcely bear to see myself, and I was determined not to depend on anyone who was equally conscious of my guilt." I soon acquainted Lord Peyton with this resolution, which he combated with every argument love could dictate. He assured me in the most solemn manner of his entire esteem, insisting that he only was to blame and that he should never forgive himself for the uneasiness he had already occasioned me, but entreated me not to punish him so severely as ever again to give the least intimation of a design not to confirm our marriage. As I resisted my own passion, it may be supposed that, although too late, I was able to resist his. I saw that a generous man must act as he did, but no generosity could restore me to the same place in his esteem I before possessed. His behavior on this occasion fixed my good opinion of him, but could not restore my opinion of myself. All he could urge, therefore, was unavailing. The stronger my affection, the more determined I was in my purpose. Since the more I valued his esteem, the greater would my suffering be at knowing that I had forfeited it. I acquainted my father with my resolution, alleging the best excuses I could make. He was at first angry with my inconstancy, charged me with capriciousness and want of honor, but at last was pacified by my assuring him I would never marry any man. As he had been sorry to part with me, the thought of my continuing with him as long as he lived made my peace. Lord Peyton's impatience at being detained in Ireland increased with his desire of persuading me to relinquish a design so very grievous to my own heart as well as to his. But he could not obtain leave to return into England before I found, to my inexpressible terror, that the misfortune I so sincerely lamented would have consequences that I little expected. In the agony of my mind I communicated my distress to Lord Peyton, the only person whom I dared trust with so important a secret. Instead of condoling with me on the subject of my affliction, he expressed no small joy in a circumstance which he said must reduce me to accept the only means of preserving my reputation, and added that as every delay was now of so much importance, if the next packet did not bring him leave of absence, he should set out without it, and rather run the hazard of being called to account for disobedience than of exposing me to one painful blush. 
I confess his delicacy charmed me. Every letter I received increased my esteem and affection for him, but nothing could alter my purpose. I looked upon the execution of it as the only means of reinstating myself in his good opinion, or my own, in comparison of which even reputation seemed to lose its value. But severe was the trial I had to undergo upon his return into England, which was in a few days after his assurance of coming at any hazard. He used every means that the tenderest affection and the nicest honor could suggest to persuade me to marry him, and the conflict in my own heart very near reduced me to my grave, till at length, pitying the condition into which I was reduced, without the least approach to a change of purpose, he promised to spare me any further solicitation and to bury his affliction in silence. After obtaining a promise from me that I would suffer him to contrive the means for concealing an event which must soon happen. As my unintriguing spirit made me very incapable of managing it with tolerable art and secrecy. Lord Peyton had maintained his former friendship with my father, who thought himself obliged to him for not resenting my behavior in the manner he imagined it deserved. When the melancholy and much-dreaded time approached, Lord Peyton gave me secret information that he would invite my father into the country, on pretense of assisting him by his advice and some alterations he was going to make there, and assured me of careful attendance and the most secret reception from a very worthy couple to whose house he gave me a direction if I could contrive under color of some intended visit, to leave my own. All was executed as he had planned it, and when my servants thought I was gone to visit a relation some miles distant from London, I went as directed, and I was received with the greatest humanity imaginable by Mr. and Mrs. Selvin, not at their own house, but at one taken for that purpose, where the affair might be more secretly managed. Lord Peyton had concealed my name even from them, and secured their care of me under a borrowed appellation. The day after I got to them I was delivered of you, my dearest child, whom I beheld with sorrow as well as affliction, considering you as the melancholy memorial and partner in my shame. Mr. and Mrs. Selvin attended me with the greatest care, and were never both absent at a time. They acquainted Lord Peyton with the state of my health by every post, and I was enabled, by the necessity of the case, to write to my father as frequently as I usually did when absent from him. Within the fortnight from the time of my departure from my own house, I returned to it again, after delivering my dear Harriet into the care of these good people who promised to treat her as their own child. Under pretense of a cold, I confined myself till I was perfectly recovered. Lord Peyton detained my father until he heard I was entirely well, and then went with impatience to see his little daughter, over whom he shed many tears. As Mr. Selvin afterwards informed me, 
telling it that it was a constant memorial of the greatest misfortune of his life and could never afford him a pleasure that was not mingled with the deepest affliction mrs selvin had lain in about six weeks before i went to her the child she brought into the world lived but a few months upon its death at lord peyton's desire they took you from nurse and pretending you their own privately buried their child who was likewise nursed abroad mr selvin was a merchant but had never been successful his wife died when you were about three years old having no children to provide for and not being fond of trade he was desirous of retiring into the country lord peyton to facilitate the gratification of his wish procured him a small sinecure gave into his possession three thousand pounds which he secured to you and allowed him a hundred a year for the trouble of your education with an unlimited commission to call on him for any sums he should want the constant sense of my guilt the continual regret at having by my own ill conduct forfeited the happiness which every action of lord peyton's proved that his wife might reasonably expect fixed a degree of melancholy on my mind which no time has been able to conquer i lived with my father till his death which happened not many years ago at his decease i found myself mistress of a large fortune which enabled me to support the rank i had always enjoyed though lord peyton had provided sufficiently for mr selvin's and your convenience yet i constantly sent him a yearly present till no longer able to deny myself the pleasure of seeing my dear child i prevailed upon him to remove to london and to fix in the same street with me taking care to supply all that was requisite to enable him to appear there genteelly you know with what appearance of accident i first cultivated a friendship with you but you cannot imagine with how much difficulty I concealed the tenderness of a mother under the ceremonies of an acquaintance. Of late I have enjoyed a more easy state of mind. I have sometimes been inclined to flatter myself that your uncommon merit and the great comfort I have received in your society are signs that heaven has forgiven my offense and accepted my penitence, which has been sincere and long, as an atonement for my crime, in which blessed hope I shall, I trust, meet death without terror, and submit, my dear daughter, whenever I am called hence, in full confidence to that power whose mercy is over all his works. I ought to add a few words about your dear father, who seemed to think my extreme regular conduct and the punishment I had inflicted on myself such an extenuation of my weakness that he ever behaved to me with the tenderest respect i might almost say reverence and till his death gave me every proof of the purest and the strongest friendship by consent we avoided each other's presence for three years by which time we hoped the violence of our mutual passion would be abated he spent the greatest part of it abroad, and at the end of that period we met with the sincerer joy from finding we were not deceived in our hopes. 
Our attachment was settled into the tenderest friendship. We forbore even the mention of your name, as it must have reminded us of our crime, and if Lord Peyton wanted to communicate anything concerning you, he did it by letter, avoiding with the extremest delicacy ever to take notice that any such letters had passed between us, and even in them he consulted about his child in the style of a man who was writing to a person that had no other connection with it than what her friendship for him must naturally occasion, in a point where he was interested by the tenderest ties of the most extreme paternal love. I have often with pleasure heard you mention his great fondness for you in your childhood, when he visited at your father's. Your growing years increased it, though it obliged him to suppress the appearance of an affection which you would have thought improper. I need not tell you that I had the misfortune to lose this worthiest of friends about half a year before you came to London, which determined me to send for you, that I might receive all the consolation the world could give me, and see the inheritor of her dear father's virtues. While he lived, I dared not have taken the same step. Your presence would have been too painful a testimony against me, and continually reminded my lord of a weakness which I hoped time had almost effaced from his remembrance. Miss Selvin was extremely affected with the perusal of this paper. She was frequently interrupted by her tears, grieved to the heart to think of how much uneasiness she had been the cause. As soon as she had concluded it, she threw herself on her knees at Lady Amelia's bedside, and taking one of her hands, which she bathed with her tears, "'Is it possible, then,' said she, "'that I have thus long been ignorant of the best of parents? "'And must I lose you when so lately found? "'Oh, my dear mother,' How much pleasure have I lost by not knowing that I might call you by that endearing name? What an example of virtue you have set me! How noble your resolution! How uniform and constant your penitence! Blessed you must be supremely by him who loveth the contrite heart, and you and my father, I doubt not, will enjoy eternal felicity together, united never more to part. Oh, may your afflicted daughter be received into the same place, and partake of your happiness. May she behold your piety rewarded, and admire in you the blessed fruits of timely repentance, a repentance so immediately succeeding the offense that your soul could not have received the black impression. Can you, who have never erred, said Lady Amelia, see my offense in so fair a light? What may I not then hope from infinite mercy? I do hope it would be criminal to doubt when such consolatory promises appear in almost every page of holy writ. With pleasure I go where I am called, for I leave my child safe in the divine protection and her own virtue. I leave her, I hope, to a happy life and a far more happy death when joys immortal will bless her through all eternity. I have now, my love, discharged the burden from my mind. Not many hours of life remain. Let me not pass them in caressing my dear daughter 
which, though most pleasing to my fond heart, can end only in making me regret the loss of a world which will soon pass from my sight. Let me spend this hour, as I hope to do, those that will succeed it through all eternity. Join with me in prayers, too, and praise us off, him in whom consists all our lasting happiness. Miss Selvin sent for the minister of the parish at Lady Amelia's desire, and the remainder of her life passed in religious exercises. She expired without a groan in the midst of a fervent prayer, as if her soul was impatient to take its flight into the presence of him whom she was addressing with so much ardor. Miss Selvin's affliction was at first extreme, but when she reflected on her mother's well-spent life and most happy death, it much abated the excess of her grief. By that lady's will, she found herself heir to twelve thousand pounds and all her personal estate. She had been charmed with the account Lady Mary Jones had sent her of this society and wished to increase her acquaintance with that lady and therefore offered, if proper, to make her a short visit as soon as her necessary affairs were settled. This met with the most welcome reception and she came hither as a visitor her stay was gradually prolonged for near two months, when, having reason from the great regard shewn her to think she should be no disagreeable addition, she asked leave to join her fortune to the common stock and to fix entirely with them. Nothing could be more agreeable to the other three ladies than this offer, and with extreme satisfaction she settled here. Upon this increase of income, it was that my friends established the community of indigent gentlewomen, which gave you so much pleasure. Lamont was much struck with the conduct of Lady Amelia. She had shewn, he said, a degree of delicacy and prudence which exceeded what he had a notion of. He never met a woman who foresaw the little chance she had for happiness in marrying a man who could have no inducement to make her his wife, but a nice, often a too nice, sense of honor, and who certainly could have no great opinion of her virtue. The folly of both men and women in these late unions was the subject of our conversation till we separated. In the afternoon the ladies asked us to accompany them to the house they had just taken for the new community, to which they were obliged to go that day as they had set several persons to work there. They keep a post-coach and post-chaise, which, with the help of ours, was sufficient to accommodate us all. A short time brought us to the house, a very old and formerly a very fine mansion, but now much fallen to decay. The outside is greatly out of repair, but the building seems strong. The inside is in a manner totally unfurnished, for though it is not empty, yet the rats and mice have made such considerable depredations on what time had before reduced to a very tattered condition that the melancholy remains can be reckoned little better than lumber. The last inhabitant of this house, we were informed, was an old miser whose passion for accumulating wealth reduced him into almost as unfortunate a state as Midas 
who, according to the fable, having obtained the long-desired power of turning everything he touched to gold, was starved by the immediate transmutation of all food into that metal the instant it touched his lips. The late possessor of the house I am speaking of, when he was about fifty years old, turned away every servant but an old woman, who, if she was not honest, was at least too weak to be able to put any dishonesty in practice. When he was about threescore, she died, and he never could venture to let anyone supply her place. He fortified every door and window with such bars of iron that his house might have resisted the forcible attack of a whole army. Night and day growled before his inhospitable door a furious Dutch mastiff, whose natural ferocity was so increased by continual hunger, for his master fed him most sparingly, that no stranger could have entered the yard with impunity. Every time this churlish beast barked, the old gentleman, with terror and dismay in his countenance and quaking limbs, ran to the only window he ever ventured to unbar, to see what danger threatened him. Nor could the sight of a barefoot child or a decrepit old woman immediately dispel his fears. As timorous as Falstaff, his imagination first multiplied and then clothed them in buckram, and his panic ceased not till they were out of view. This wretched man, upon the death of his only servant, agreed with an old woman to buy food for him and bring it to the well-defended door of his yard, where, informing him of her arrival by a signal agreed upon between them, he ventured out of his house to receive it from her and dressed it himself. Till worn out by anxiety of mind, he grew too weak to perform that office and ordered the woman to bring it ready prepared. This continued for a little time, till at last he appeared no more at his gate. After the old woman had knocked three days in vain, the neighborhood began to think it necessary to take some measures thereupon. But not choosing to run the hazard of breaking open the house, they sent to the old gentleman's nephew, whose father had been suffered to languish in extreme poverty many years before his death. Nor was the son in much better condition, but he had acquainted some of the neighbors with the place of his abode in hopes of the event which now induced them to send for him. As soon as he arrived, he prepared to force his way into the house, but it was found so impracticable that at length they were obliged to untile part of the roof, from whence a person descended and opened the door to those who did not choose so dangerous an entrance as that through which he had passed. They found the old man dead on a great chest which contained his money, as if he had been desirous to take possession even in death. His nephew was just of age, and having till then been exposed to all the evils of poverty, was almost distracted with joy at the sudden acquisition of a large fortune. He scarcely could be prevailed with to stay long enough in this house to pay the last duties to an uncle who had no right to anything more from him than just the decent ceremonies, and without giving himself time to look over his estate, hastened to London. 
He hired a magnificent house in Grosvenor Square, bespoke the most eloquent equipages, bought the finest set of horses he could hear of at double their real value, and launched into every expense the town afforded him. He soon became one of the most constant frequenters of White's, kept several running horses, distinguished himself at Newmarket, and had the honor of playing deeper and betting with more spirit than any other young man of his age. There was not an occurrence in his life about which he had not some wager depending. The wind could not change or a shower fall without his either losing or gaining by it. He had not a dog or cat in his house on whose life he had not bought or sold an annuity. By these ingenious methods, in one year was circulated through the kingdom the ready money which his uncle had been half his life starving himself and family to accumulate. The second year obliged him to mortgage great part of his land, and the third saw him reduced to sell a considerable portion of his estate, of which this house and the land belonging to it made a part. I could not help observing the various fate of this mansion, originally the seat of ancient hospitality, then falling into the hands of a miser who had not spirit to enjoy it, nor sense enough to see that he was impairing so valuable a part of his possessions by grudging the necessary expenses of repairs, from him devolving to a young coxcomb who by neglect let it sink into ruin and was spending in extravagance what he inherited from avarice. As if one vice was to pay the debt to society which the other had incurred, and now it was purchased to be the seat of charity and benevolence. How directly were we led to admire the superior sense as well as transcendent virtue of these ladies, when we compared the use they made of money with that to which the two late possessors had appropriated it. While we were in doubt which most to blame, he who had heaped it up without comfort in sordid inhumanity, or he who squandered it in the gratification of gayer vices. Equally strangers to beneficence, self-indulgence was their sole view, alike criminal, though not equally unfashionable, one endeavored to starve, the other to corrupt mankind, while the new owners of this house had no other view than to convenience and to reform all who came within their influence, themselves enjoying in a supreme degree the happiness they dispersed around them. It was pleasing to see numbers at work to repair the building and cultivate the garden and to observe that at length from this inhospitable mansion, health to himself and to his children bred the laborer bears. Within it were all the biggest schoolgirls, with one of their mistresses to direct them in mending such furniture as was not quite destroyed, and I was pleased to see with how much art they repaired the decays of time, in things which well deserved better care, having once been the richest part of the furniture belonging to the opulent possessors. On our way home, we called at a clergyman's house, which was placed in the finest situation imaginable, and where we beheld that profusion of comforts which sense and economy will enable the possessors of narrow fortunes to enjoy. 
this gentleman and his wife have but a small living and still less paternal estate but the neatness prettiness and convenience of their habitation were enough to put one out of humour with riches and i should certainly have breathed forth agar's prayer with great ardour if i had not been stopped in the beginning by considering how great a blessing wealth may be when properly employed of which i had then such hourly proof at our return to millennium hall we found some of the neighbouring society who were come to share the evening's concert and sup with us but at ten o'clock they departed which i understood was somewhat later than usual but they conformed to the alteration of hours our arrival had occasioned the next day being very hot we were asked to breakfast in a delightful arbour in the flower garden the morning dew which still refreshed the flowers increased their fragrance to as great an excess of sweetness as the senses could support till i went to this house i knew not half the charms of the country few people have the art of making the most of nature's bounty these ladies are epicures in rural pleasures and enjoy them in the utmost excess to which they can be carried all that romance ever represented in the plains of arcadia are much inferior to the charms of millennium hall except the want of shepherds to be judged a deficiency that nothing else can compensate there indeed they fall short of what romantic writers represent and have formed a female arcadia after breakfast all the ladies left us except mrs maynard we were so charmed with the spot we were in that we agreed to remain there and i called on my cousin to continue the task she had undertaken which she did in the following manner End of section 14